Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast where we talk with authors about the most recent monographs in the field of folklore studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the podcast. Before we begin, it, may, it will be helpful to briefly discuss what, is, what we mean by the, by the word folklore as a field of study. Folklore privileges the informal over the institutional and the vernacular over the cosmopolitan. Folklore may look at traditional forms that we popularly associate with the term, Forms like folk tales and festivals, riddles, proverbs, epics, and many more. Folklorists, however, are also defined equally by their theoretical and methodological approaches as they are by the topics of their research. And, and their research, as a result, can also examine a variety of cultural forms that may be less commonly associated with the field. These may include craft traditions and stand-up comedy, as well as narratives shared by online communities or people sharing the same occupation. It may include oral histories and even college football fan cultures. This is all in hopes of better understanding the diverse and changing social worlds that we all inhabit. Today, I talk with Ray Cashman about his recent book, Packy Jim, Folklore and and Worldview on the Irish Border. This fascinating look into the relationship between the individual and tradition examines how one man, Packy Jim, interweaves personal narratives, tales of historical figures, and stories of encounters with the supernatural to discursively construct a worldview on the Irish border. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Folklore, an occasional podcast in which we talk with authors of the latest monographs in the field of folklore studies. I'm one of your hosts, Tim Thurston, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Professor Ray Cashman about his new book, Packy Jim. Ray Cashman is Associate Professor of Folklore and Director of the Folklore Institute at Indiana University in Bloomington and the editor of the Journal of Folklore Research. Ray, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tim. Delighted to be here. Uh, To begin, I was just wondering if you'd tell us a little about yourself. What's your folklore origin story? Right. Well, a little bit about myself. I guess um, in my experience, uh, people who went to Harvard and people who grew up in Texas, those two types of people will make sure that they tell you that within the first paragraph of getting to know you. I did not go to Harvard, but I did grow up in Texas. And I guess I mentioned that just to say that, well, I miss the place, and I suppose I'm proud of the place or something like that. It was really leaving Texas, going to college in Massachusetts, not Harvard, that kind of began my life as a professional outsider, which is to say an ethnographer, really. Going to Massachusetts was a culture shock. Uh, It helped me have a sort of firsthand experience of, well, cultural relativity, that all the fine differences that make a difference, that uh, the big differences that also have to be reckoned with. There was something about that experience that in a masochistic way, made me want more. So I wanted a junior year abroad somewhere. At the time, I was studying uh, comparative religion. Uh, I was interested in Islam. I wanted to go to Egypt. 
uh, I didn't get to Egypt for reasons. Instead, I ended up in Ireland, and uh, I'm glad I did. Ireland had always been an interest, um, but it was serendipity that got me there. And that was another step forward in terms of being a kind of professional outsider, always observing similarities and differences and appreciating the human condition, yeah, but as situated in a certain place. Well, that year in Cork was really fantastic. There was a lot of freedom um, at University College Cork to study what I wanted to study, and that's where I discovered folklore. As I said, I'd been studying comparative religion. I was really more interested in the maybe anthropological side of that. Um, folklore, because there was no anthropology department, folklore offered me a kind of a, a grassroots um, look at traditional, vernacular, expressive, and material culture, you know, from the ordinary person's point of view. It was great access into Ireland. So... After I finished that year, I finished up my studies. I did a short stint teaching in Connecticut at a heart of darkness little uh, boarding school. I ran screaming into the night toward grad school, uh, which was my way to get back to Ireland in a more um, rigorous way to learn the tricks of the trade of uh, fieldwork. And uh, long story short, I, I wanted to go to... Uh, I guess the other end of Ireland, that is to say, uh, as far from Cork as you could get would be Northern Ireland, crossing the border that splits the island into two states. And I settled in a place called Ahiarn in the County Tyrone, Northern Ireland, and uh, set about doing a folkloristic community study that ended up being, well, it, it turned into uh, the book that predates the one we're going to talk about today, that's storytelling on the Northern Irish border. And very briefly... Uh, it was um, an attempt to see that people themselves have already done their own ethnography. All the ethnographer really should do is pay attention. I paid attention to the sorts of stories that they told each other at wakes and at Cayley's, which is uh, nighttime visits. Um, and in these stories, you see certain types of people, certain character types that come up again and again and maybe stand in for propositions or orientations to the world that people find worth thinking about. I mention all of that because, okay, so we get from Texas to Ireland to other parts of Ireland. Um, here's a place where I get to stay for a while. I get to kind of understand shared and idiosyncratic values and preoccupations and so forth. And in the middle of all that, I met this guy, Packy Jim McGraw, and he is the, the subject of the book we're going to discuss. And he was certainly part of that world, but over time it became apparent to me that he deserved his own book. Um, and we'll say more about how that came to be, but um, in a way, I don't think I could have written the Packy Jim book without having done the time in Tyrone first to kind of understand the big picture. Um, in a way, we've shifted scale from a community study to a one-person study, but you can get to the ethnographic from the one person in the same way that you can get to an understanding of individual genius from, uh, from the collective as well. So you asked about my origin story as a folklorist. That's a kind of chronological story. There's a whole nother story about a one-armed man, but I'm not going to tell that one right now. It takes too long. So 
you you briefly just sort of alluded to Packy Jim, who is the sort of the main subject of this particular uh, of the book that we're talking about today. So I guess I guess the the obvious question is, who is Packy Jim? Right, Patrick James McGraw, Packy Jim McGraw, um, born probably in 1932 or 33. We're not quite sure. He's not quite sure. The number has changed over time with different conversations, but. He is like you or me. He is doing his best in a complicated world. He grew up on the border, literally, uh, in County Donegal in the Republic, but on the border with Northern Ireland. And he grew up in a household uh, that regularly saw smugglers come to pass the time until the cover of darkness allowed the unofficial economy of the Irish border to kick back into life. So Basically, as a child, he heard all of these stories and all of these songs and all of these recitations and neighborhood gossip and and all of these stories. Um, And he just soaked them up, as he says, in his young life, he was all ears, but now is his turn to talk. So he's a fellow who lives um, until very recently in a stone cottage of a vernacular type that's common in this part of the world. It was until recently thatched, until recently he cut and dried all of his own turf, was a fairly self-sufficient guy. He knows an awful lot about the process of illicit distillation. Not saying how he knows this, but he does know this. Anyway, he is, he's not typical. He might have been more typical in an earlier age. Um, He prefers his distance he doesn't feel deprived at all by not having electricity or running water. This is just the life that he's comfortable with. Like I say, he's not typical. He is uh, somebody who nonetheless has converted a kind of social distance into a kind of intellectual distance necessary to honestly theorize his own society. I guess Another way to put this is that, maybe a more interesting way to put this, is that when I first met him, I was a young graduate student, and I was worried, oh my gosh, am I wasting this grant money? Am I wasting my time? Is there going to be such a thing as folklore to record? People said, go see Packy Jim. I said, all right, I'll go check it out. And here was a guy who punctuated and animated and illustrated his conversation with stories about ghosts and fairies and outlaws and hateful landlords. And I thought, fantastic, I've hit the jackpot. Here's a guy, he's speaking in stories that have motif numbers and tail types and great, I've found it, I've found folklore. And yet, while that's all true, over time, and I've known him for a really long time, since 1998, I suppose our relationship has matured. I've matured, and I've shifted from a kind of collecting model uh, of folklore scholarship to something more reflexive and ethnographic. In other words, what I've come to appreciate is that the most interesting thing about Packy Jim is not that he has so many traditional stories for like a folklorist to collect, but how does he use those stories? Rhetorically, how does he use them like parables to comment on the current situation? How does he use stories to think about the nature of life, the nature of history and society, the sacred and profane, and in fact to provide a 
in some cases, a, a really insightful critique of his own society, which honestly wasn't really a big part of the first book. So I, I see the two books complementing each other, not only in terms of scale, but also while the book, the first book wasn't meant to be celebratory necessarily, it was talking about how people use stories to overcome all sorts of problems, threats to continuity and change, in other words, threats to community, sectarian strife, in other words. But the first book didn't talk about maybe some of the darker sides of that society and giving Packy Jim uh, free reign to do so, um, I think complements that first book. All right. That's fan- That's really fascinating. It certainly helps me understand the second book uh, a little bit better. Um, so how did, how did you come to write this, this book itself? And, and, and so you've sort of given us an introduction to who introduction to who package Jim is and, and sort of how you met him, but how, how did you come to, to write this particular way of understanding him, if that makes sense? does. I mean, it's a, it's a question that, you know, burdened me for many years. I mean, here's the thing. Um, I, <clears throat> in a way, Packy Jim was a side project for a long time, too long. Um, that turned into kind of virtue in some ways in that, so I didn't plan to take this many years of just interviewing him and not writing a book, but in, because that was just the way life happened, um, I had the benefit of seeing him use some of the same stories in the same way, rhetorically speaking, and in different ways over time. I get to compare how he's used, uh, how his sense of self has developed over time as he's aged, as I've aged, as we've come to know each other better. Anyway, um, one of the problem, one of the challenges, let's say, of that is that let's say you've got a decade of fieldwork with somebody and a way you've almost got too much stuff. How indeed you've asked the question, how do you go about writing? Well, uh, I always want to cast nets widely and be as inductive as possible and see what patterns emerge. But when you got a lot of trees, it's hard to see the forest. Um, in this case, there were a lot of models for me to use when it comes to a one-person, performer-centered ethnography. Really good models out there, but they tended to be along the lines of, you start with a biographical introduction. Here's this person's life. And then you have one chapter after another, usually organized by genre. So a chapter on legends, a chapter on ballads, a chapter on folk tales, a chapter on myths. And there's nothing wrong with that model. But what it privileges is how a person's biographical details can help illuminate the stuff, the text, the lore. Nothing wrong with that. But I was interested in some other models of kind of reversing that, of thinking about the relationship between the individual and tradition. It makes sense to think that, look, traditions don't exist except for certain people taking what's handed down to them, creatively recycling and adapting them to present needs. That's kind of how you get at the granular level of how tradition works. That makes sense. I'm interested in that. But I'm also interested, and Packy Jim showed me the way to this, that, wow, an individual is like a tradition in some ways, and that they're not inherent, 
They're not essential. They're not unchanging. They're dynamic. They're recursive. They're discursively created. Individuals and traditions both. A person, a self, a persona is performed over time. And tradition is one of the resources that people use to conceive of and mm, propose and present a coherent self. Packy Jim, more than anybody ever I've ever met, made such um, uh, uh, an aesthetically pleasing but also insightful use of handed down materials, folklore, in order to present to me and to others a sense of his self, a sense of right and wrong, a sense of um, what is and isn't when it comes to big questions about the sacred and so forth. Anyway, you're asking me a writerly question, and I've gone into something a little more abstract, but I can bring it down to a writerly question, which is, I've got all this stuff. A book is linear. It's made up of chapters. Wow, how do I carve it up? What I tried to do was take my cue from Packy Jim himself, in that while this is a part of the world where people don't talk about themselves very often, he does nonetheless have a core set of personal narratives, of sort of iconic stories, the sort of things you need to know about me to know me, Packy Jim. He's got about a dozen stories that he repeats, and I looked at those for certain preoccupations, certain values, certain orientations, and I look to those as th- themes to help organize the chapters that come later. There was one moment, going on a little too long, but I-, I think this is important to get at this anecdote. There was one moment early on in our relationship where I came with a finding list and I wanted to know about fairies and this guy has stories about fairies. And he told me a really fantastic elongated story about the origin of the fairies. The fairies, according to the story, are those neutral angels that took neither God's side nor the devil's side in the original war in heaven. And they, because they didn't take a side, they were sent down to heaven and they had residual angel-like powers, um, but they're never going to get back into heaven. He told me that story and I got all jittery, like, oh, I've got folklore. But then when he started talking about himself, about being offended by somebody in a, in a pub, I, I tried to get him back to talking about fairies. I didn't realize at the time that he was talking about fairies and about himself. He was talking about fence-sitting, about not making a decision. He was talking about himself through myth. Now, that was an example of how... Genres, while you can do different things with different genres, sometimes people talk thematically in a way that they will draw from whatever genre is at hand. So this helped me with a writerly issue. I paid attention to his personal stories that proposed certain preoccupations that then organized the chapters, and then I used whichever stories spoke to those uh, particular preoccupations. So if a story that he starts with about playing hooky from school does a really good job of transporting us to the overwrought mind of a young child, thinking about what's going to happen to me if I break these rules. Well, that brings up uh, not a 
coherent decision he's made in his life, but a lifelong tension between, do I follow the rules and subordinate my own autonomy, or do I act more like a maverick? That's a thing that animates, that's a, that's a theme in stories that are not just about the self, but about the people around him. So that starts a whole chapter on authority and rules. After authority and rules at the, at the sort of like individual level or the familial level, if you think about that at the micro level, what we're talking about is power and politics. That gets us started. So maybe you have follow-up questions about maybe the organization or chapter by chapter, but what I was trying to do was follow his lead on certain preoccupations and then let those preoccupations be the thematic guide to the chapters that followed and then bring in whatever stories that or songs that are important to him that speak to those thematic issues great um that makes that makes a lot of sense to me and both the writerly side of it and the more theoretical side of it all uh really help to sort of understand what's well, sort of the stakes of this book as well which i think is really great um <clears throat> so i guess uh Looking at so so the book begins with this sort of this introduction using tradition constructing itself and you've already sort of gone into a lot of that but one of the words that you haven't yet mentioned um, that that plays an important role in your introduction is worldview and I was wondering if you could um, sort of uh, discuss a little bit more both about your use of the term worldview and and how narrative leads us to that. And also to how that, how you distinguish between that and Bourdieu's concept of habitus, which is another point that you sort of bring up in that introduction. It's not exactly a currently popular term, but it's one with a long history in both folklore and anthropology. And I suppose as a folklorist of a certain type, uh, I'm just constitutionally uh, against throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think that Every term leaks. Uh, every term has its own uh, baggage, if you will. Worldview, to me, is nonetheless a useful term to explain what it is I'm after. So this book might be about a certain person, um, but I've never lost sight of the goal as an ethnographic one. That is to say, to gain some sort of insight. I guess I've said it this way before, but something like the human condition as it is situated in a certain time and place. I'm interested in culture on the Irish border, past and present, but especially the present and how it's informed by the past. Well, one way in is just looking at one person. One way, another way in is looking at a lot of texts from a lot of people. I chose one person here. Now, worldview is uh, kind of an umbrella term to encompass a lot of what I'm after. I'm interested in other people's attitudes, orientations, um, values, their sense of morality, their beliefs, their ideologies, uh, their epistemologies, how they even create knowledge, and at a really broad level, cosmology. Now, all of those, those are big words and it's a big laundry list of words. Worldview is kind of the umbrella term that joins all of those together. They're all connected at some level. Well, how do you get at worldview? You don't just stick a tape recorder into someone's nose and say, what is your worldview? Most of us are, uh, most of us are, <clears throat> you can derive worldview. It's something that we've all internalized, but it's through people's expressions. It's through people's expressive culture that they, um, 
for lack of a better term, through their folklore, that what they're doing is they're expressing internal frameworks of mind. Um, and there are many places you could start for worldview, grammar, kinship systems. Packy Jim, he, he puts his um, emphasis, he, he uh, devotes his intellectual and emotional energies to narrative. And so that's where I focused with him. And as I say, it's in a part of the world where speaking about the self isn't necessarily seen as sufficiently modest, so he uses other people's stories to get across um, propositions that would lead us to a sense of worldview. Now, if worldview is something like a quarry, and I've privileged folklore as a, as a means to get to it because the subject of the book, um, Racky Jim, privileges it, I've been asked an interesting question before, especially by science types, scientistic folks. Um, they say, like, from my perspective, N equals one. That is to say, your data set is one person. How is this telling us anything about worldview? And that's an interesting question. That's a good question. But I think worldview is always both collective and idiosyncratic. That is to say that Packy Jim is responding to, in his own way, shared conditions, and working with uh, available materials. And he may do it in his own way that's different from other people, but even in his more eccentric uses of what's been handed down, he is reacting to the same variables and in many ways reiterating or reflecting um, the shared aspects of worldview. To give a, maybe a more extreme example of that, Carlo Ginsberg wrote a book called uh, The Cheese and the Worms. He was looking at um, historical evidence of a 16th century Italian miller named Minocchio. And the reason he's in the historical record at all, I mean, Carlo Ginsberg didn't get to go interview the guy. I had that luxury with Packy Jim was because he was brought up, Minocchio was brought up before an inquisition because he had these really eccentric ideas about how the world came into being. It formed out of chaos like cheese does from milk. And uh, angels came out of this uh, chaos into order like worms do out of food. These are all sort of casual heresies that got the attention of the church. And unfortunately, eventually got this guy executed. He is super eccentric here, and yet he tells us so much about shared worldview of his time. Even though he's off his rocker by certain people's perspectives, he's responding to, in his own way, so many things, uh, whether it's shared liturgy and orthodoxy or uh, the popular uh, literature and oral literature of the time. So Minocchio can tell us a lot about the worldview of people in his uh, time and place in the same way that uh, Packy Jim can as well. So uh, if it's okay with you, I'd love to jump forward to, you, you sort of started talking about some of the themes that appear in Packy Jim's sort of most commonly told narratives. And you, you briefly mentioned this authority and rules um, and the, the story of playing hooky one day. Um, and I was wondering if you could just sort of expand upon this a little bit more first on, on the issue of authority and rules and, and sort of particularly this was the first 
chapter in which this was done and it really struck out stuck out to me how both this personal narrative and um several other narratives sort of tie in together to um to sort of talk about this this larger issue of authority and rules and what it means to as you said sort of be a maverick or someone who follows the rules and these sorts of things i think now the Irish border is not unique in this aspect. Uh, I think a lot of border societies are this way, and not even just border societies. But if you grow up in this part of the world in this time, um, if you grow up on the border, that border is completely man-made and arbitrary. And the rules that govern everyday life have come from distant centers of power, whether it's political power in Belfast or Dublin or London, or um, divine power uh, in the, a church based in Rome or elsewhere. So anyone growing up in this place, in uh, a disadvantaged place, has to come to some accommodation um, about um, what rules will I follow? What rules are convenient? What rules are inconvenient? What rules comport with my moral compass? Okay, so... Here's the thing. I'm, I guess I'm making a distinction between morality and ethics. And that is a huge distinction for a lot of people in a place like the border. Ethics, you might say, are rules and strictures handed down from man-made structures like governments and churches. Morality is something that you accept as true about what's good and what's right and what's wrong. But you don't necessarily feel bad if you get caught with your moped that hasn't you haven't paid your taxes on. You might feel differently if you've signed up to thou shalt not murder, right? Okay, so anybody's got to come to deal with that massive amount of gray area between the rules that say that I'm supposed to pay taxes on this, that, or the other thing. And you know what? If I have to distill some illegal, uh, illegal liquor to, to make ends meet, I'm okay with that. Packy Jim is surrounded as a young kid by all of these rules, and um, he feels so horrible about breaking them. But as he becomes, as he gets older, he realizes that, you know what? The schoolmaster who beats me at school for coming late because I'm always sleeping late because I'm always staying up late listening to all these stories, he also comes around my house very often, not just to, you know, uh, wag his finger at me, but also to buy some whiskey from my parents. He notices that the person who's given out to him about not showing up at school, the warrant officer, is also a member of the IRA, a prescribed organization. Over time, he realizes that, you know, you've got to understand that it's a bad thing to, as he says, to be too scrupulous. If you're going to grow up in this world, you have to understand what rules are worth following and what ones aren't. There's a kind of a border mentality that um, really privileges the, the individual and their own moral compass and their own ability to decide for themselves what rules to follow, what rules not to. Now, that's just the world he grew up in. But of course, it is made up of, it is a legacy of the larger drama of colonization. So for him as a young kid, um, a figure that shows up again and again are outlaws. The local outlaw is a man named Black Francis of Princess Doof. And what's so interesting about him um, is that he breaks the law 
he robs the rich to steal to steal from the rich to give to the poor and it, he does so in a really fraught um, uh, context in which those people he's stealing from can easily be seen as the usurpers that is to say uh, English and Scottish Protestant settlers sent to the north of Ireland to settle it, to anglicize it. And then you've got all of these native Catholic Irish who are now have to pay rent um, to survive on the land that their ancestors used to own. Well, here you've got an outlaw standing up for those people, stealing from the rich, giving to the poor in a politically charged atmosphere. And what he gets to do is he gets to stand up and do the right thing. He breaks the law. But he gets to, to, you know, which is an ethical thing, um, an ethical issue, but he gets to do the moral thing, which is to stand up for what's right. That is someone who fascinates Baggy Jim and is um, an early and late model exemplar for how to think about right and wrong. And what's also very useful to him is that there are many other examples, members of the IRA, for example, who are following a script in in many ways, following a similar script. But Packy Jim also wants to make a distinction between legitimate and illegitimate uses of violence, especially when it threatens community. Look, Protestants have been in Northern Ireland and in Ireland for uh, generations. They're not. You can't just say go back to England. They're your neighbor now. So Packy Jim knows from personal experience that community is made up of all types, Catholic and Protestant. And um, what the outlaw does is stands up for a certain class. There are many Catholics and Protestants who are of the same sort of hill farming class. And um, Packy Jim values someone like Princess Doof who doesn't use violence, uh, except maybe in self-defense. In the end, the outlaw is always martyred. He's always caught and he's always hanged. Um, but he stood up for what's right without actually doing harm to community. There are many other examples where that cannot be said to be the case, that community itself is threatened by someone taking um, uh, a stand and using armed struggle. And that is actually a minority opinion in his part of the world to think subtly about when is it right and when is it not right to use violence, to stand up for oneself, given that there's such, um, there's such a premium put on individual autonomy? I think I might have not answered all of your question, but maybe you've got a follow-up and that'll get me back on track. Well, I, I think it gets to a lot of it. I guess so, so this is sort of combining both uh, chapter two, which is about the authority and rules in chapter three, power and politics, we sort of, and sort of how he's linking across multiple uh, narratives, both personal ones and historical narratives to sort of understand these relationship of uh, authority and rules and power and, and, and the, the use of power in life and, and just power. Um, one of the things that stands out to me, and I think that many folklorists will recognize sort of in this marginality and in this border mentality are echoes of um, tricksters who might be seen as being sort of betwixt and between. Um, it certainly, it uh, perhaps naturally also gives rise to thoughts of sort of the, the passing the time in Ballymanone where uh, at least for me, it made me think of how people had to sort of leave and then come back and had to be marginal in order to sort of become the person that they would be 
it's slightly different because this is getting into questions of power and being marginal and, and developing the, the right sort of relationships to power when you are in your own way marginal to that power. I guess um, I wonder, do you think that these are more the result of the questions that we ask or the people of whom we ask them? Or does this speak to sort of more broader concerns considering it's perhaps so easy to tie into things like tricksters and, and, and other sort of marginal characters who are so often the topic of our. Sure. No, that's, that's right. I mean, I, I think that if you're already alive to a certain uh, dynamic or a certain motif or a certain type of character, um, it, it's natural enough to, to latch onto that. Oh, here's an example of this thing that I was hoping you'd talk about. Um, I think that there is a, a methodological um, uh, point to be made here that while it's impossible to do what I'm saying, it's nonetheless uh, maybe an aspirational goal, or at least it's my aspirational goal to be as inductive as possible. To be deductive would be to say, I think I know what's going on here, and I'm going to go find me some examples that that uh, you know support my hypothesis. I think that these people have a certain attitude. Oh, look, there's an example. They're into tricksters. That tells me something about their ambivalence toward rules. Okay. I, I think it's impossible to be entirely inductive, but it's nonetheless a hope that... I gave Packy Jim a lot of extra space and a lot of extra time and uh, amassed a lot of texts and then tried um, to see what patterns emerged inductively. You know, what was he trying to tell me? That is to say that like, not just in his personal stories, which of course are a kind of a getting to know you sort of phase, but in all of his stories, what is he trying to get across to me? And certain themes came up again and again. And so I had a kind of a, almost like a, a quantitative advantage to feel confident that um, every expression in a way is a form of autobiography, even if he's not talking about himself, even if he's talking about outlaws instead. If they keep coming up again and again, and it's not just me asking for them. It gives me a sort of confidence that um, he would be talking about these sorts of things even if I weren't there. You know, you worry about a kind of, uh, uh, what's the word, like a, a bias based on your, just your presence being there. I'm not saying that the following uh, proves anything, but it helps me feel more confident that I'm picking up on what he wants to convey to me. So early on in the book, but late in my relationship with Packy Jim, RTE, that's the national uh, broadcast and TV network in, in Ireland, um, started a, um, there's a show called Primetime. And um, Miriam O'Callaghan is the, the journalist who runs that. And they were doing a story on disadvantaged rural bachelors. And so I'm not knocking journalism, uh, but to oversimplify in order to make my point, someone like Miriam Callahan, a journalist, has a timeline. They have a deadline, uh, and they have to be a little bit deductive. What they need is a disadvantaged, uh, underprivileged rural bachelor. And so through some small world connections, somebody sets her up with Packy Jim. A guy I never expected to see on television. A guy he never expected to see himself on television. But there he is on television being interviewed by Miriam Callahan. And I'm not there at all. She's working very deductively, whereas I'm trying to work as inductively as possible. And yet 
even though she's asking questions I would never ask, at least not on a first date, if you will. Really forward questions. Why did you never get married, Packy Jim? Why did you never leave and seek your fortune elsewhere? These are questions you sneak up on, you know? You don't just ask that on the first date. Anyway, he answered her with exactly the same stories he answered me. And in, in many ways, some of the same way. So there was something to be said for it. Yes, a personality is a performance and it's discursively constructed and it can be reconstructed and, and, and renegotiated. And yet there's something to say for like a kind of coherence there too. None of us are inherently coherent, but there is the attempt at coherence that we use through the kind of stories that we tell again and again. That was an example for me that wow, this, this, this guy really would be saying these sorts of things. These, whether it's tricksters uh, or themes uh, that we've started to discuss and others that we haven't discussed yet, they come up again and again. And that is one of the advantages to the long-term relationship as opposed to if I had just gone in and I only had a couple of weeks. Right. Okay. Um, so you, there are these two chapters that focus more on questions of power. Um, and then, but then the the chapters the two chapters immediately following this start to look more towards place uh and the first of the two looks at sort of place more in the physical realm and the and the fifth chapter looks at it in the supernatural and i guess um i wonder so so you call sort of his narratives uh particularly in that chapter about place history and morality um, this is chapter four. You, you call his narratives emplaced stories. And I was wondering if you could expand on what this means, both more generally and also particularly in relation to Package Jim. Okay, cool. So I, I should have said this earlier, but I mean, to give you a kind of forest uh, for the trees sense of the trajectory of the chapters, yeah, they're inspired by the themes that come up in his uh, personal stories, but then you still have to organize it in a kind of logical uh, sequence. The sequence I chose was, it's quite clear to me that um, a very big chunk, let's say half of his repertoire, is about uh, uh, stories set in the profane world, in the everyday world. He's interested in stories that act as kind of like little um, morality tales about how to and not to act. Let's say the other half of his repertoire is very much interested in the sacred, um, in issues of uh, the supernatural. And so um, those two things, the profane and the sacred, the sacred and the profane, of course they intermingle. But I've got a linear book, right? So I stuck with, in the first part, mostly legends and ballads and other representations of the past where he's using the past to think about the present, right? And then in the second half, ones that have more to do with what is the shape of reality? Why are we here? How did we get here? Where is this all going? But in between, there's a kind of a bridge. You brought up place. He brings up place all of the time. I used place as a kind of a bridge between the profane and the sacred in the two halves of the book. When I say place comes up again and again, more than anybody I've met, um, when Packy Jim travels through the landscape, or even just mentally travels through the landscape when he's talking, different places stand in for him as reminders of these morality tales about how to and not to act. Stories about great virtue and great treachery. 
Um, and it doesn't matter as much to him when it happened in 1848 that Peggy Rowe tried uh, valiantly to save her brother from um, exposure during a blizzard. 1848 isn't the point. It's Caracaholton Forestry right over there. That place is where that happened. And in a sense, that story is continuing to happen for him. All of these little place worlds, and that's just one of many, many examples. What matters is that these places are the sort of mnemonic pegs on which he can hang the moral teachings of the history that he's inherited. So chapter four, Place, History, and Morality, looks at the kind of range of virtues and vices that characterize human nature that he knows from his own world. Place is very important to him. Well, place is also important when you think about his, um, his conception of place doesn't include just the here and now, not just that rock, not just that place. Or rather, those places can point to things beyond the here and now. So chapter five continues on with place in placed stories, but of encounters with the weird, the mysterious, the supernatural. So he's got stories about ghosts and fairies and wraths. That's the local pronunciation of what we might say wraiths. And he uses those as a way to think about big things, teleology, eschatology, cosmology. So chapter five uses place as a bridge to get into his thinking about um, cosmological, cosmological aspects of his worldview. And that's a lot of big words, but he is perfectly capable of using inherited stories to come to similar conclusions to big thinkers, Weber, Durkheim, Marx, Freud. I mean, he's a I say he's a vernacular social critic. He's also a vernacular social, I mean, not social, a uh, vernacular um, philosopher and uh, theologian in some ways. Well, <clears throat> if chapter five uses place as a bridge into his thinking about supernatural things, it's also important to note in all of his stories, whether personal or handed down in traditional third-person stories, he's not just a credulous fool. I mean, if you ask the uh, everyday person on the street in uh, uh, you know, any given city in America, do you believe in fairies? They'll laugh at your question. Packy Jim knows that he's stigmatized by believing in fairies and ghosts. And he would, he characterizes himself, these are not the term he uses, but uh, as, a, as a rational believer. So chapter six is really about belief and skepticism. He is not above uh, questioning official church teachings. He's not above questioning handed-down stories about ghosts and fairies. He has a really um, keen sense of um, when someone is telling a story and there might be a kind of rhetorical overreach. He's not unlike a folklorist in being able to say, ah, that's an oikotype. That's a local version of a story that's got legs, that's been around. He's not above seeing that that story might not be true literally, but it might have a metaphorical truth. And he's got a responsibility to tell the story to allow other people to come up with their own conclusion. So uh, belief and skepticism, he wants to get across um, that he's paying attention that uh, there's something more subtle than just did it happen or did it not happen. 
Um, and he's bears witness to a kind of idiosyncratic, but also locally and collectively informed vision of, um, of the sacred. And again, going back to the kind of man-made imposed, uh, sort of strictures versus what is really real when it comes to the sacred, he's got stories and experiences. He knows that there's such a thing as the really real, the numinous, and that humanity using let's say the 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 uh, the limited resource of language can only put things metaphorically and sometimes uh the metaphor the man-madeness of religion is uh not where the really real is he's very interested in not just sort of like knocking the church as a man-made institution but seeing oh the church has changed over time that tells me that there's something man-made about it. I will pay attention to the the, the common denominator between uh, those things that I'm willing to live by when it comes to understanding how the sacred works. So um, if there's a question about how's, how's the book organized, there's a kind of a, a profane half and a sacred half. There's one that has more to do with morality and using history to think about the present and how then shall I live. And then the second half about um, why are we here? Where is this all going? Then the book starts to try to uh, try to start to wrap the book up, and I use chapter seven, which is entitled "Community in a World of Limited Good." I use that as a final case study to try to demonstrate that, like, look, the sacred and the profane. Of course, those things are interrelated. He's interested in both of them, um, and he knows that those two things um, influence each other. And there are also certain preoccupations and anxieties and tensions that have come up in the previous chapters that is more easily illustrated with uh, uh, a case study. In this case, it is um, a preoccupation with the difficulty of living with others, of such a thing as community, given the very violent history of this part of the world. Uh, given also human nature to be jealous, human nature to want to take a shortcut. A world of limited good is not my phrase. It's George Foster's phrase, an anthropologist who was looking at um, quote-unquote peasant societies in Mexico and and elsewhere. And he recognized that um, in certain places, in certain social uh, configurations, there's a sense that there's only so much good in the world. And the only way to get us all to get along is to cooperate. Because if someone profits, if someone gets ahead, it's at the expense of other people. If there's a limited amount of good in the world, if you get more than me, that's less for me. Well, that kind of fits with a lot of the stories he tells me about witchcraft, about... Um, the evil eye about, and it doesn't just have to be supernatural stories, also historical legends about um, relations deceiving other relations and getting them evicted and taking over their land. He's got a lot of intimate and also in, in some ways uh, really um, um, amazing stories about uh, the, the wages of getting ahead. He is super ambivalent about 
competition and uh, what that does for community and the prospect of community. So what we have in the last chapter about witchcraft and the evil eye is uh, that points back to stories in the first half of the book is um, his theorizing through folklore about the difficulties of living in community, about the difficulties of ambition and competition, about how morality and power and the spirit world are all completely intertwined. And this is a, a, a way of um, anticipating uh, the final full chapter, which is uh, just entitled Worldview, which gives me a chance to review and distill and make connections between various aspects of his worldview. Uh, the, the idiosyncratic that are really just Packy Jim, but Packy Jim in response to his larger world, and the ones that are also quite collective, um, and I, I know that they're collective from previous experience in that part of the world with a, with a community study. Um, so the last chapter on worldview is, is a, an opportunity or an attempt, let's say, to offer some final observations about the ethnographic payoff of, a, of attending to this one person and his repertoire and what he's trying to do with it rhetorically, whether representing himself to me or to others. That's amazing. Really helpful. Uh, I guess so. So and then you end with this brief afterward about sort of, and it's entitled Real Folklore. Um, and before I read it, it immediately made me, th I was thinking about, you know, sort of how it might fit into Richard Dorson's idea of, idea of fake lore. But at the same time, this is, this is Packy Jim's term, right? It's his neighbor's this real yeah, folklore. And, and his, yeah, right. Um, no, you're right. It's his, his and his neighbor's, right? And so, and so he's bringing in this idea of, uh, what is real folklore and and you you seem to be using that to sort of get back to larger disciplinary questions um and i was wondering if you could just really briefly take us through that you know i i remember the afterward the least well but i'll do what i can i i to be honest that afterward is there um i hope that the rest of the book can reach more than one audience and that you don't have to be a folklorist to appreciate what's going on, or an anthropologist, or an academic at all. That if you're interested in this part of the world, here is somebody bearing witness. Or really just interested in the kind of issues that come up. You don't have to be interested in Ireland. But afterward, real folklore is a chance for me to maybe restate and own again my own role in the co-construction of knowledge that is this book my own agendas in the representation of Packy Jim and his world, a chance to be kind of reflexive. And the main audience is, is other folklorists and anthropologists. Again, which isn't to say that, you know, I'm trying to exclude anyone, but that's the main audience. Now, if that's the main audience, one of the things I'm trying to own up to is that, um, you know, this term folklore, it's got so much uh, history, so much baggage. It's got uh, both very positive and very negative connotations. And in, in Ahiarn, in County Tyrone, um, 
people kept saying, you need to go see Packy Jim if you want real folklore. And it was interesting to figure out what they meant by real folklore. And it's, it's kind of what you expect, perhaps. The common everyday person in the street idea of folklore is that which is old, that which comes to us from a long time ago. I, I guess I got my back up a little bit about sort of feeling that, look, folklore isn't just that which is old or quaint or something like that. People were almost apologetic in saying you need to see Package M for real folklore because they thought they didn't have folklore because they were responding to a kind of a negative sense that's in the air about folklore as being false and old-fashioned and whatever. But while I was in Ahiran, I mean, I went out mumming. I, I, uh, I, I documented uh, commemorative parades. Um, I heard all sorts of stories at Wakes and Cayleys that, by my definition, are folklore in the sense that they're, it's traditional, vernacular culture. Now, people said, you got to go see Package M for real folklore. And what part of what they meant was, he burns turf in his own fireplace. You know, he doesn't have electricity. He's got stories that we've forgotten. There's a flip side to that. They're also saying that they're giving him his due as like, you know, the, repo- the Shanaki, the repository of folklore. But there's a stigma involved as well of being backwards or something like that. Um, I wanted to get away from that stigma. Um, I didn't use the word folklore with Package M in the beginning. I said, do you know any stories about the local past, whether they're funny or historical or mysterious? Um, and he was perfectly capable of giving me that stuff. That's the stuff he, that's the stuff he trades in. Um, but when I did use the word folklore, he'd go, oh, he'd go to his bookshelf. And he'd bring down a school reader, and he'd read to me a story about Finn McCool. Stories about Finn McCool just weren't part of his repertoire. They weren't as relevant to him as stories about Black Francis, the, the outlaw. So in the afterward, I'm, I'm trying to say, like, look, the word is relative. Um, he uses it this way. I'm trying to include in the category folklore any story that is useful to him, any story in that intertextual bundle that fills the person-shaped hole that helps him make sense of the world. So I would include in the category of folklore his personal stories. They're first person. Some folklorists wouldn't consider that folklore because the content isn't quote-unquote traditional. But I got to tell you, as a genre, it's got all sorts of genre conventions and expectations that are conventional, and they have a conventional function uh, or, or traditional function. I'm trying to include in that also recitations or poems or, you know, his remembrances of uh, novels he read that speak to him because they speak to the certain issues that are the themes that, that organize the book. I consider all of those things where an individual uses collective resources to speak to the present, handed down resources to speak to the present, to be something like, quote-unquote, real folklore. So I was having, I guess I was playing with what does real folklore mean? And in talking to other folklorists, I was also having a final moment of making a plea for let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of some people don't want to use this word, the capital F word, folklore. There are maybe some excesses to the reflexive critique in folklore studies, perhaps, um, that I think it's absolutely right to say that like folklore is a meta, 
a metacultural category for naming the not modern. I get that the term and the idea of folklore has been used that way all over the world in certain times and in certain uh, situations. And that it's a double-edged sword, that it comes with stigma. I've seen it. Packy Jim deals with it. On the other hand, I just wanted to make a plea for a common sense understanding that, look, there really is such a thing as handed down verbal and nonverbal resources for coming to understand one's place in the world. That there is such a thing as tradition as a resource that can be creatively recycled. That is not just about... Um, uh, slavishly repeating what's happened before because one is, you know, a conservative-minded peasant or something like that. That what we have here is an, uh, I would say, an individual genius in Packy Jim, uh, being able to use uh, handed-down materials to meet present needs, and that's what I was trying to show. What he's got is real folklore, and uh, not necessarily in the same way that people meant it when they say, "Hey, go see that guy out in the mountain." That's what it's there for. Uh, but it is maybe that's because it's an afterward because it's for maybe um, um, a smaller audience in the rest of the book. And the same thing, one last thing to say, the same thing would be said for the footnotes. And there are many appendices here. Um, all of the tale types and motif numbers are there for the folklorist who wants the text, who's not interested at all in my interpretation or Packy Jim's co-interpretation of his stuff. And that's fine with me. I'm happy that the texts are recorded. In 20 years, in maybe less, uh, interests will change. Fashions will change. Uh, you can excise, you can scrape off everything I have to say about what he has to say, and the text will still be there. The back of the book allows you something more like liner notes about the text to send you back into the archive and back into the library to show you that, look, here are the roots of, here are other examples of exactly the stories he's talking about. So the back of the book, the, the end notes as well, are kind of there for scholars who they want to get into the weeds with some of the debates about the nature of repertoire or worldview or whatever. I tried to have that distilled in the main text, but the, um, like I say, the, the longer sort of, um, more debate centered, um, uh, methods and theories in the end notes. I just got a, just got one extra question really quickly about the book itself. Um, Packy Jim is still alive. I'm just curious, has he seen it? And if so, what does he think? Well, it's a relief. I gotta say that he's happy with the book. Um, now, he's seen parts of it as we've gone along, and I wanted him to be able to weigh in. Um, one always fears... Uh, my boogeyman story about this comes to me from John McPhee, a writer. He, he shows up in The New Yorker a lot. He wrote a book called The Crofter and the Laird. Um, and he's a creative nonfiction writer, among other things. He doesn't have necessarily the same um, agendas as an ethnographer, but he went to this small Scottish island and he collected a bunch of stories and he told them the way that made the best story for the audience he was trying to, uh, to reach. And it made a, you know, a tidy little book that did well for him. But when he went back to Colonze, uh, people wouldn't let him off the boat. They were not interested in the way that he represented them. And that is always a fear. And especially if you're just dealing with one person, representation is always selective. And you worry that um, you're both true to 
the relationship and also true to the truth. And that's a difficult balance to strike. That's a long way of me saying that he's happy with the book. In fact, there are, are places where um, I, might have, I might have dipped out of quotation into something more like editorial comment so that it didn't set himself up for friction in his community. Um, and he, if he has any complaints, there are a couple of places where he said, like, you know what, you could have used the real name there. You didn't have to pull that punch. That guy is a bastard. <laughs> so, um, in general, I'm I'm relieved that it. Uh, I get to go back. We get to continue our relationship. He's happy with the representation, even if um, uh, this isn't the book that he would write. But he recognizes himself in it. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's that's nice to hear. Um, well, Ray, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, but before we let you go, I was wondering if you would finish by telling us what you're working on now. Oh, sure. Um, so now, I suppose it is um, useful for me to tack back and forth between ethnographic and historical work. And so at the moment, I'm working on still Irish materials, but um, I'm working more with archival materials, um, dealing with how is the famine of the uh, mid-19th century remembered uh, over time uh, in legends, in songs? Um, I'm particularly interested right now in a phenomenon known as the hungry grass. And the hungry grass is um, an experience people have reported on for centuries in Ireland, whereby uh, they're just known places in the landscape where a person can be walking over land and feel all of a sudden uh, just completely famished and fatigued. And uh, there's a cure for it. If you have just even a small bite of food, um, it, it, it will it will set you right. But otherwise, you know, people have been so weak that you know they they have to crawl home, or they get they're very lucky that someone finds them. Now, um, how is this interpreted? The hungry grass predates the famine. In fact, the famine I'm talking about from 1845 to 1852 uh, wasn't the first famine, but it was a huge watershed in Irish history. Uh, the population of Ireland at the time was 8 million before the famine. Uh, the famine comes and uh, a million people die from starvation and disease. Another million immigrate. Over time, uh, you know, very soon afterwards, the the population plummets from eight million to five million. Now, those are statistics. It's hard to wrap your head around that. Um, I think folklore perhaps provides a means through which to um, understand the emotional core of that. Okay, back to the hungry grass. How is the hungry grass interpreted? Where does it come from? After the famine, the most common interpretation of the hungry grass is that is a spot where someone during the famine died. And what you are experiencing is what they experienced just before they succumbed. Now, one thing to think about is that the memory of the famine doesn't show up in the record of folklore that we have from the 19th century up to the present in um, coherent narratives. They're often fragmented, which you might expect from uh, trying to remember a traumatic experience. 
you might also consider the possibility that those who survived experienced a kind of collective survivor's guilt. If you survived, or your ancestors survived, and somebody else didn't, is it because you didn't share with them? Is it because you were one rung up the social ladder? Um, survivorship in general, I mean, all of us are here because people before us had to make some very difficult position, uh, um, decisions. That's a very difficult position, a subject position to be in. Um, there may be something about the interpretation of the hungry grass that allows people a kind of starvation kuvad. That is to say that, you know, the idea that you're experiencing what they experience might expiate the guilty of, of being a survivor, that, you know, you've gone through that. There's, that's just like one aspect of what should in the end be a larger, um, a larger project on how the famine is remembered. And it's not through direct expository stories. It's often through fragmented uh, memories, and it's often through interpretations of weird things like the like the hungry grass. So that's maybe too long an answer to a simple question, but that's what I'm working on right now is historical um, historical materials, but some of the same issues. That is to say, ordinary people trying to theorize the nature of history and society and their place in the world and right and wrong. Sounds fantastic. I can't wait to read read the outcomes of that as well. Um, Ray, thank you very much. Uh, this has been really wonderful. Um, when you when you finish that next project, we'll look forward to having you back on. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks very much.